What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, my guest is anti-imperialist historian Vijay Prashad. You actually don't need to destroy the statue of Robert E. Lee. Let's create cemeteries for these people. Let's let's put them out there. Let children go in school buses to go and observe what racism is like and explain to them that, look, look at the way they did this statue. It was put up in 1898, you know, so many years after the Civil War. Why? Let's understand that. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. As the Soviet Union came crashing down, Francis Fukuyama declared what he called the end of history in 1994. Imagining that capitalism had won out, socialism had failed, and that global governing formations would sit within capitalist democratic values from there on. This end of history theory has been challenged by many, including Fukuyama himself much more recently. Our guest today is a historian and a scholar who thinks of history not in linear form, not in cyclical form, and certainly not in a form that has an ending. Our guest today says history zigs and zags, where we consider failed historic movements as experiments that didn't quite go right, as opposed to failures. More importantly than failure or success, though, the point here is that the struggle itself is a learning process and a humanizing one. For that reason, Vijay Prashad's latest book is called Struggle Makes Us Human. It's a conversational exploration of how those zigs and zags can teach us how to imagine a better world. And before we even hear his voice, I'll give one major spoiler for the ending. The world he imagines is socialist. Thank you so much for joining us, Vijay. Thanks a lot. That's a great introduction. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been reading your anti-imperialist historical analyses for many years, and particularly your writing about the project of the third world has had a major impact on me. So we're going to dive into that history in a bit, not just to look backward, but also to look forward and imagine a better world. But let's work our way there. What are the zigs and zags in history, and why is it useful to explore history through that lens? Well, you see, one of the principal problems that we face is that there are what I consider obstinate facts of history. You know, this word obstinate, I stole from Franz Fanon. Well, what are some obstinate facts? Obstinate fact number one is that there is the existence of hunger. We know, for instance, that people simply don't get enough kilocalories um, every day. You know, they, they are missing meals. They are eating less than than, than is required for the human body, for, for you know, the kind of work that they're doing and so on. So we know hunger exists and it, it's a blight. It affects billions of people. Um, now, it's impossible for people who are hungry to say, well, you know what, I no longer want to be hungry. Um, you know, so, sorry, I no longer want you to care about me being hungry. In other words, it's impossible for people to say, hey, listen, hunger doesn't matter. No. Hunger matters. It's a compelling and obstinate fact in their lives. So people have, you know, for a long time tried to transcend hunger in one way or the other. You know, whether it's in earlier epochs of history, hunter-gatherers looking for better places to find food, people domesticating crops, uh, you know, having agriculture and so on. All of these things are a quest to transcend hunger. Under the capitalist system, we haven't actually seen hunger be transcended. In fact, the opposite. 
When you look at UN studies recently, you see the numbers of, of people who are hungry increase quite dramatically. Well, let's be a little humble as humans and say that for millennia, we've tried to transcend hunger. In the recent period, we've done a pretty good job because, you know, we've been able to produce in agriculture for various reasons, uh, far more food than we have uh, people on earth. But there are problems because people don't have money to buy the food and so on. Okay, fine. Um, but this desire to transcend hunger sets in motion a series of experiments, you know, whether it's improving agriculture, whether it's trying to create cooperatives, whether it's merely just feeding people, you know, sort of welfareism and so on. So some of these experiments succeed, others fail. Uh, and that's the nature of the human quest to transcend obstinate facts. And so I feel that, you know, if you look at history in a linear way, that every time you try to transcend something, you'll either succeed or fail. If you succeed, well, that's an optimistic view of history. If you keep failing, that's a pessimistic view of history. None of those appeal to me, neither of them. What actually appeals to me is the idea that humans continue to persist to transcend obstinate facts, partly because we can't surrender to them. And in those in that persistence, we come up with different things. We learn from our experiences. Sometimes we don't learn, but often we do. And in the zig and zag, in the failures and in the successes, we find a way you know, to get ourselves closer towards transcending some of these things. And some of them, such as you know, absolute poverty in China, has been transcended. That's incredible. So when we're thinking about zigs and zags in history and specifically like the things that we can learn from and build from, when you think of zigs and zags, is it just looking at all history and things that we learn from everything? It seems that when we identify things further in the past, it can be easier to identify the things that we want to focus on as opposed to like the history that is playing out right now. How do we identify the things that we want to learn from. Obviously, there's too much in all of world history to put our energy into learning from everything, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a person who's interested in certain things. So I have my interests, and you know, I, I, I'm speaking from those interests, not from as it were universal history, Jesse. So, what what is my premise? What is my uh, you know, general orientation. See, I believe that um, if you don't try to change the world, you can't really understand how the world works. And it's very hard, therefore, to experiment with new ways of making things happen. You know, if you're, if you're sitting in an office and you're merely thinking about the world, you know, you're kind of an idealist. You, you think about ideas and you think about the world. You're not necessarily going to understand what have been some of the successes? What have been some of the failures? So I am keen to look particularly at mass movements, mass experiments, even state projects, um, which have thrown themselves into trying to transform the world. I'm, I learn a lot from them. I'll give you an example. Landless workers movement in Brazil. It's a very large movement. It's one of the largest social movements in Latin America. Well, the landless workers, the MST, um, what did they do in the 1980s? They decided that there was a great deal of land hunger in their country. People were desperate to find housing, for instance. They were building favelas that were unsafe, dangerous in urban areas. They were eating poor quality food. Um, they were basically in food deserts as well. 
So the MST was formed in 1984, not as an organization, you know, which was now going to dispute um, the, you know, the dictatorship, which was there at the time in an abstract way. What they decided, they went among the people. Uh, and in fact, the people had already started to do this and they occupied empty land and they built settlements. And on these settlements, they built places for people to live. And they also built farms where they started to grow food agroecologically so people could eat well and so on. So the MST now has, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of people um, in these, these settlements. Um, you know, it's an incredible experiment. And what they've been able to do as a poor people's movement by just seizing land is they've been able to challenge the state, which has in the abstraction of its laws, the right for people to use empty, unutilized land. In fact, that was there in earlier constitutions. Nobody acted on it. Now this political force comes in acts on it. That's a very successful way to go. Now, obviously, you know, having built these settlements, they are still undercapitalized. Uh, this is not utopia. You know, this is a, a start of something. When you go and visit these settlements, what you find is people with a great deal of confidence. You know, they have now confidence in their life. The atmosphere at an MST settlement in comparison to a favela, say in Rio de Janeiro, it's night and day. I mean, in the MST settlement, there's a school right at the center. There's a kitchen available for people who don't have enough uh, to get by. There's a wonderful set of gardens growing, you know, fresh vegetables and so on, using unique forms of fertilizer that's there. Meanwhile, in a favela, what you see is you blight, you know, you've got drug dealers, you've got Pentecostal churches, um, you've got people just desolate and unemployed and they are eating really bad food. You know, that's if you look at the two, you know, where's the choice? Now, I don't want to say. Well, the MST is is discovered the future of of the world. No, it's just experimenting with trying to improve things, trying to produce socialism, and and that's why I look. I look at movements because I believe if you're trying to change the world, you develop a very strong understanding of the real world. You know, not not the ideal world. So I'm wondering if we can take what you described in the power of the MST and what they've been able to develop in Brazil and think about what we can learn from it, not just because you've identified things that you think are really great in that space in Brazil, but like, what do you take from that that you can learn and maybe bring forward as you envision a better world somewhere else that also may not, of course, have the same exact conditions that the MST is dealing with? Well, one of the things I've really learned from the experience there, but also reading about what had happened in Burkina Faso between 1983 and 1987 um, in, you know, the government of Thomas Sankara. And, you know, the, the great phrase used by Mao when the Chinese revolution um, succeeded, it's three phrases, I'm, I'm going to just play with these. You know, Mao said, well, the Chinese people have stood up, stood up. That's an important phrase. Um, when Thomas Sankara came to power in Burkina Faso, it was Upper Volta in 1983. And he fights to change the name to Burkina Faso, which means land of upright people, you know, stand up, land of upright people. And this confidence I've described to you at an MST settlement. One of the things that we don't seem to appreciate um, enough 
is that the point isn't just to get food to people. You know, this is the limitation of a kind of welfareism. The point isn't just to get food to people. The point is to have the ability for people to lead dignified lives, to feel that, you know, they have stood up. They are upright people, um, that they have confidence. They can change the world. Something like, you know, what I learned from walking in those settlements, uh, spending a lot of time amongst the people who live there, reading about Burkina Faso. And so what I've learned is that, you know, the, the socialist experiment isn't about, you know, just transcending um, hunger. It's not just about putting food in somebody's plate. Um, it's about producing a world where people have this kind of confidence. And we keep seeing this confidence emerge. I'll give you an example. When the Russian Revolution took place, um, Krupskaya, who was a leading educator in, in the new Soviet Republic, she writes about how she would visit um, groups of factory workers just after the revolution had triumphed. And she said, you walk into this factory workers meeting and people just stand up and they talk with an immense amount of confidence. In fact, she says that their Russian began to change. Um, the poet My Vladimir Mayakovsky said the same thing. He said that we can't just use the same Russian. We have to smash Russian. We have to create a new kind of language, you know, where, where people's confidence emerges, where they don't have to, you know, hunch their shoulders when they walk down the street. You see, too much in contemporary capitalism, too much is focused on things like charity and on welfareism, where people, in fact, end up having to hunch their shoulders as they accept donations from an NGO or a charity of one kind or the other, mm -hmm. or as they line up to get, you know, food from the state. There's a kind of hunching of shoulders that takes place. And I think we don't actually reflect on that enough, Jesse, because the point of socialism, it's not just, um, again, to transcend the obstinate fact, but it's also to create a world where people don't have to look at the ground when they're talking to other people. You know, they, we should be living in a world of eye contact. And eye contact, a world of eye contact is a world of confidence. And that's what I really want to emphasize as having learned from some of those um, explorations. You're listening to Law and Disorder, and we're in conversation today with Vijay Prashad, whose latest book is Struggle Makes Us Human. Um, I want to bring our conversation into the U.S. context. One of the zigs and zags that you talk about in the book um, is the Civil War statues that we've seen in recent years, a hefty number of them torn down. Um, but they've been up for many years, in some cases, hundreds. But um, I'm wondering if you can talk about when they were created, when they were put up, and specifically when these statues were erected, what did that signal about the abolitionist movement that ended chattel slavery as we knew it in the mid-1800s? And how does that zig and zag into our abolitionist movement now? It's a really interesting and important discussion. Um, you know, when you walk around many parts of the West, Jesse, not just the United States, but of course in Europe as well, when you walk around these societies, it's it's stunning. You know, you're confronted by statues. I, I once went to the University of Texas, Texas at Austin, and just there's like an avenue of statues of people who did horrendous things in the past, you know, um, so-called 
you know, I mean, this is actually a phrase, okay? So-called Indian killers um, and so on. You know, horrendous things. Wow. And there are statues of them standing in regalia with Native Americans at their feet. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's ugly, okay? It's there. And the argument that's always made, of course, is, well, you know, this is historical. Uh, and these are, it's a matter of heritage or whatever. Well, the funny thing is that right after the... Um, the Confederacy was defeated by the Yankees. Um, that's not when the statues were put up. That's not when Robert E. Lee and all the other generals had, by and large, some statues might have been put up. I, I don't want somebody now to call in and say, hey, listen, there's that one statue in Alabama that was, well, no. Right. By and large, um, the statues were not put up in 1866 or right. 1867 or 1868. No, no, because partly... There was a kind of humiliation in the U.S. South, okay? Um, the federal government came in, the Yankees come in, they tried to do something called reconstruction, which would have been a hugely radical maneuver that was defeated. Um, no, it's not then. Wait a minute, guys. It's not a heritage because look when the statues are erected. The statues are erected at the time when the major lynchings are happening, you know, um, at the time in the late 19th century entering into the 20th century uh, when African-American um, enfranchisement is on the table um, when for instance you know even the separate but equal um, you know uh, judgment which is a deplorable judgment but that's that's hugely an advance from merely inferior you know because you're saying separate but equal I mean there was a lot of white supremacist hardcore white supremacist greatly uh, you know, upset by that. Well, that's when the statues come up. Why? Because that's when they are, in a sense, saying um, white supremacy must exert itself again. So there is no question that these are not statues of heritage. These are statues of white supremacy. You know, they are direct, absolute indications that no, you cannot even begin to imagine that you can exert yourself in society, get back to your place. And we're going to put a statue up that will humiliate you. We're going to put a statue up uh, of somebody who was, you know, uh, um, uh, an owner of human beings. We're going to put a statue of a Confederate general. We're going to put Confederate flags in your face. I mean, that's when it all begins at the time of the Ku Klux Klan and so on. So, you know, when it's, it's obvious that for years and years and years, decades, um, African-Americans in the U.S. South, for instance, have complained about the existence of these statues, not because they you know, are contesting, quote unquote, the heritage of the Confederacy. No, because they have understood for decades that these statues were put up, those flags fly as an indication of their um, need to not feel confident in society, their children to be scared when they walk in the public sphere and so on. And that's why the question of the statues and their removal is back on the table, you know. And I want to keep saying this, Jesse, because people shouldn't misunderstand this. It's not like 30, 40 years ago, people were clueless about the statues. You know, this has been a mm. long-term demand to remove the statues. The statues of, of slave owners in, in England, the statue of Winston Churchill, it's been a long-standing demand to remove them. It didn't come yesterday. Okay, now, quick, funny thing. When the British Empire was defeated in India, uh, you see, New Delhi 
was filled with statues of British colonial officials. And funnily enough, a lot of these statues, they were, they were dressed in togas as if they were Roman you know, senators uh, bringing mm. the Republic to India and so on. So h- hilarious statues. Well, what did the Indian government do? Indian government did something quite funny. Instead of saying, let's knock the statues down, which, you know, is what they actually did, but they didn't say that. What they did was they removed all the statues and put them in a kind of graveyard in the outskirts of Delhi. Wow. And so you can actually go and visit these statues there. They haven't been destroyed, but it's a kind of cemetery of colonial statues. It's quite an odd place. Um, In Delhi, meanwhile, they erected statues of the national um, heroes, you know, Gandhi, Nehru, and so on. Uh, I find those a little excessive sometimes, but still, that's what they did. They immediately removed the statues of the colonial officials because why do you want to live next to a statue of, of Churchill, for instance? Put him in a cemetery. That's what they did. It's a cemetery to colonialism. Why can't people do that in countries like the United States? You actually don't need to destroy the statue of Robert E. Lee. Let's create cemeteries for these people. Let's let's put them out there. Let children go in school buses to go and observe what racism is like and explain to them that, look, look at the way they did this statue. It was put up in 1898, you know, so many years after the Civil War. Why? Let's understand that. It could be educational. It's kind of an open-air cemetery exhibition museum. The way you talk about statues and uh, the Confederate flags being waved in people's faces in the late uh, 19, uh, sorry, the late 1800s, early 1900s, as as kind of like a, we want you to know and remember that we don't respect your humanity. It makes me think about what we've seen more recently in these white nationalist uprisings. It's the it's the same thing. There might not be new statues going up that might not be socially acceptable, perhaps, but Confederate flags waving in the faces of black people. Um, in celebrating the past, it seems like the exact same impetus by the people who are waving those flags. I mean, you know, the Confederate flag is an obscene and ridiculous um, instrument because, you know, people put it up on their cars and then they fly it and and so on and so forth. Um, Yes, you see, again, why? You know, there have been, of course, great advances in the last 30, 40 years the Civil Rights Movement produced the Equal Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and so on. These were considerable advances. Um, these advances opened the door to have, you know, senior people in the judiciary of, of African-American descent, and then eventually you get Obama and so on. All of that. All of that. Um, you see, during the reign, the long reign of, of Bill Clinton and the Democratic Party, just as the Labour Party in Britain and other social democratic forces in in Europe. During that long period of of social democratic politics in the 90s and early 2000s, um, they favoured a kind of identity politics. You know, let's have a rainbow nation and all that. But at the same time, these same governments increasingly impoverished um, ordinary people's lives. I mean, the levels of personal debt go up unemployment, precariousness, the quality of jobs deteriorates and so on. And that allows an opening for the far right to come back. And rather than for the far right, which includes on the one side, you know, um, the George W. Bush kind of of character, but also Trump in the United States, Boris Johnson, uh, but not just Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss in the UK and in other countries, um, 
this far right appears and they say, hey, listen, the reason you're doing so badly, the reason quality of jobs is deteriorated, it's nothing to do with capitalism, nothing to do with, you know, um, the fact that 20 people own more than all the wealth of women in Africa, nothing to do with all that. What it has to do with is that, you know, blacks are getting positions of authority now. You've got a black president or you've got blacks on the court and so on. And they've remobilized racism. Um, so for a while, a few years ago in the U.S., seems to me there was a kind of direct clash between this remobilized racism, you know, which 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 is culminating in a kind of right wing hooliganism, which people saw on January 6th um, in the U.S. It's a kind of right wing hooliganism that clashed with the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and it's it's really interesting. This is the point I want to make about that is that, yeah, the flags get waved at Black Lives Matter protesters and so on. In many ways, the right-wing hooligan, that section, is given political cover by the right-wing forces, political forces, including in the Republican Party, um, you know, right from the beginning. Black Lives Matter is different. It's a, it's a demonstration of how gutless and weak the Democratic Party is because, you know, rather than give complete political support to the Black Lives Matter protests, there was always this, well, not that, we don't like this, we don't like too much violence, you know, we're not comfortable with that. There, there is this way in which the Democratic Party wanted to both absorb the energy of Black Lives Matter and uh, destroy its politics. So in that sense, you know, in the United States, but also in the UK, you know, the attack on Jeremy Corbyn and don't have to get into all that, but there's a way in which social democratic forces, um, you know, collude almost with the guy waving the Confederate flag on your in your face. Um, and that's a shame, you know, when young people, uh, millions of young people in Western countries erupted in whether it's Black Lives Matter or get rid of the Colson statue in the UK, millions of young people were mobilized in this defund the police and so on. When all that was happening, they got so little political cover from establishment political parties. And, you know, that's something to think about. Meanwhile, the guy in the Confederate flag, behind him are at least 50 U.S. senators. We're speaking with Vijay Prashad, and you are listening to Law in Disorder. You know, the spaces geographically that you're talking about where there's this growth of conservative right that is building power sometimes in the streets and certainly in in political offices are in spaces that are the heart of modern imperialism. One of the things you talk about in the book, um, your latest book is called Struggle Makes Us Human, is the distinction between colonialism and imperialism. We live in an era now where colonialism, certainly not gone, but, um, but not the dominant relationship between these more powerful countries and poorer countries. Can you, as you did in the book, help us distinguish colonialism and imperialism that way, and as well as the fights against them, decolonial movements and anti-imperial movements? Yeah, you know, this is a topic close to my heart because I've written about this a lot and, you know, I, I think about this a great deal. Um, you know, there, there are many people will have many different opinions on the distinction between the terms colonialism and imperialism. But here's a thumbnail. Basically, colonialism refers to the taking away of a people's political sovereignty, where you show up 
put a gun in somebody's face and say, your house is now my house and you have to do my bidding. So, you know, India was colonized by the British. Um, you know, West Africa was colonized by the British. The French colonized um, very large parts of, of North Africa, including Algeria, of course, and so on and so forth. So that's the um, essentially theft of political sovereignty. Imperialism is a slightly deeper problem. Um, imperialism refers to when a country is able to subordinate another country's, particularly its economy. Um, and so a, a country like, say, India in the 19th century was put in a place for a variety of reasons where it had to export raw cotton and jute to England. Export raw cotton means unprocessed cotton. So the price of the cotton was limited. And then Britain developed an industrial capacity to produce manufactured uh, cloth, which it would then sell back to India. And the terms of trade between selling um, you know, raw cotton to Britain and buying finished products from Britain, the terms of trade are uneven. And Britain always wins in the trade. You know, so many hours to grow cotton, so many hours to produce a manufactured, let's say, a shirt. Well, the shirt manufacturer is going to make a lot more money for those hours um, than the cotton producer who's out there in the fields. That unevenness uh, is maintained often by political or military force, but not always. Um, and here's the rub of it. Sometimes colonialism can come alongside imperialism. You can actually colonize another country, take away its political sovereignty, and then dominate it economically. But you don't need to. And that's the trick of imperialism. You don't need to. Because if you've produced a situation where a country, let's say India, has to export its, um, its cotton, and if it doesn't have the capital to build up its own factories, then it becomes dependent on um, the, the country that is the imperial power. And if a country like India says, okay, we're going to now set up factories, um, the chances are that there could be some kind of intervention, sanctions, uh, military force, and so on and so forth to prevent the country from standing up. And this is precisely what happened to Cuba after 1959. Cuba essentially exporting sugarcane, Cuba effectively just a tourist paradise for gangsters from the United States. There's a revolution. Cubans try to stand up. United States sanctions Cuba. United States tries, you know, several times to overthrow the government, including into the present. Although Cuba is an island only of 11 million people, Cuba has itself been able to advance its productive forces. It produced an amazing vaccine, um, you know, actually many vaccines against COVID-19. Produce a vaccine to eradicate hepatitis on the island. Many third world countries still gripped with hepatitis. So imperialism is a way for us to, I think, best understand how parts of the world continue to be subordinated, even though they might have political freedom. And also imperialism as a concept helps us understand that when these countries try to lift themselves up, uh, they face extra economic power. Um, they face military coups. They face invasions. They face sanctions. They face all kinds of forms to throttle them, to prevent them from improving their bargaining position in the world. And, you know, there's myriad examples in the book. I spent some time on Zambia uh, because it's a major copper producer in the world, Jesse, and it doesn't get uh, very much attention. So I, I have a whole section there on Zambia to try to explain a little better 
the make the actual way in which imperialism functions in the world so what you're saying is that when a country is able to create their own political sovereignty what's left behind um that still maintains a subordinate relationship maybe economically is imperialism and and i guess the example that comes to mind for me is in haiti and the debt that was incurred to france and paid over many years is that right i mean firstly isn't that amazing the haitian people free themselves um you know they have this amazing revolution using the language of the french revolution to some extent you know liberty equality and fraternity and then france forces an indemnity on haiti on free haiti saying no you have to pay for what was lost to the french planters well what was lost well what was lost was their property what's that property well human beings in other words until almost you know yesterday um the haitian people were paying initially the french and then later chase manhattan bank which bought the um, the so called debt from france um the haitian people had to pay a us bank why because they liberated themselves extraordinary well yeah okay so debt is one instrument of continuing to subordinate a country you see you can win your political freedom and you can be left alone you know you can do whatever you want if you challenge the structure of international economic development and 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 trade that's when you run into trouble all the military coups that we've seen you know i'm speaking to you from santiago chile next year will be the 50th anniversary of the coup against salvador allende why was allende overthrown not because somebody didn't like you know the way allende spoke or smiled or whatever he was overthrown because the previous year 1972 he nationalized copper well that was unacceptable to us multinational corporations he had to be overthrown same you know a, a decade later in burkina faso which i already mentioned thomas sankara challenging international capital going to the un lecturing the world saying listen we can't function we can't have agriculture like this he's overthrown in a coup in 1987 he is killed so was ayende um well these things happen when you challenge frontally the way the world trade and development system is organized you know one one quick way to understand this is when the cuban revolution took place in 1959 they put two concepts on the table the first is sovereignty they said look we need to control our own political economic social cultural we we need to have control as a people of all these domains okay well united states said well maybe you can have political sovereignty but not the rest but let's continue the conversation the second concept they put on the table was dignity our people need to have dignity well they didn't mean some abstract dignity have a nice constitution and so on they meant no our people need to be liberated from hunger liberated from illiteracy liberated from you know lack of housing and so on okay interesting go ahead and do it because after all that's just following the un charter of 1945 but in order to establish dignity we need resources you know we need money so how are we going to get that money well we're going to ask for more royalty payments for you know the export of sugarcane we're going to ask that um you know us telephone companies which operated in cuba uh, stop charging cubans more than the fee they charged people in washington dc so we're going to do all those things well then you come frontally in an attack against the trade and development system you know your economic sovereignty now has to be established and 
once you you argue that look we want to create a dignified population you're going to have a clash with those who control the world system because they are not prepared to let you have the resources to create a dignified population they're simply not prepared for that and so that's the clash and haiti has encountered this clash over and over again after all i think job bertrand bertrand arastide i'm almost sure jesse he has a world record he should be in the guinness book of world records why because job bertrand arastide is probably the only head of a government who has been overthrown in a coup d'etat twice uh, by the united states you know once in the 1990s once in 2004 he's the only person overthrown as far as i know twice by the united states government every time haiti has said like the people of burkina faso that we want to be a land of upright people they get they get stopped including during the period when hillary clinton was secretary of state the haitian parliament it's not a great proletarian parliament left wing nothing nothing socialist about it they wanted to increase the minimum wage of haitian workers and hillary clinton and the us state department directly intervened to prevent the haitian parliament from improving the minimum wage in haiti um, that that's what we mean by not allowing a country to exercise its sovereignty in order to improve the dignity of its people and once that happens that my friend that's imperialism well i know i'm looking forward to supporting your campaign vijay prashad to get aristide into the guinness book of world records um <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to law in disorder on kpfa so we've talked about political sovereignty in the colonial imposition and economic sovereignty in the imperial imposition i'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about slightly more nuanced imposition of i i think of it through colonialism but but things like language and as consistent and basic as political borders that during colonial processes these things were brought into many of these poorer countries right and even decolonization movements in many cases have maintained those things yeah so <laughs> this is a really important um place to go because we're talking about let's call it cultural decolonization there's a you know a lot of debate about decolonial theory and so on these days in fact i was just in havana cuba gave a talk called 10 lectures on marxism and decolonization Uh, which is part of a debate taking place in cuba on the question of uh, culture and colonialism um so this is interesting look there's a we got to face up to one thing you can't have decolonization or decolonial thought without directly confronting the economic domain as well um because you know well, let's talk about culture you know you you can rename things in many languages you can do whatever you want look after all after the coup against patrice lumumba in the congo um joseph mobuto junked his first name joseph and started calling himself mobuto sokoseke he changed the name to zaire of the congo um he said we are a great african country and so on but let's be frank mr mobuto was taking orders from washington dc you know he had done a kind of cultural decolonization but he was completely under the thumb of of the us ambassador and 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 the united states and and for that what the united states allowed was mobuto to basically steal 
you know, tens of millions of dollars at the time, a lot of money, and put it in the Swiss bank. When Mobutu was eventually overthrown, um, the exact debt of the Democratic Republic of Congo was sitting in his bank account in Switzerland. But the Swiss bank refused to turn it over to the new government. I mean, you know, well, I would like to ask a decolonial theorist, you know, how do you assess Mr. Mobutu's reign when he changed the name of the country to Zaire and so on? Big difference between what Mobutu did in in the Congo and what uh, Sankara did in in Burkina Faso. Both of them changed the name of the country. Uh, One to Zaire, one to Burkina Faso. Mr. Mobutu did a lot of interesting things. You know, he brought the famous fight between Muhammad Ali, Ali Bumaye, you know, to come and fight against Fraser in 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 Kinshasa. Uh, the you know great great fight that took place there. Norman Mailer wrote a hilarious book called The Fight About It. Very borderline racist book, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Mobutu did all these interesting things, but. At the bottom of the day, the condition of the actual condition of the people in Zaire remained miserable, in fact, deteriorated. So you've got to always, uh, you know, keep two things going at the same time. You can't talk about language and decolonial this and that unless you think about the fact that people's dignity is stripped bare because they are starving, you know, and they are clawing the earth to mine for either diamonds or coal tan or something like that, or they are being invaded uh, by Rwanda, or there's a permanent UN force that treats the people as if it itself is the colonizing mission, as as the UN force in Haiti uh, does. These are broad things that need to be on the table. I, I'm afraid sometimes when people talk about like cultural appropriation and they stay on the terrain of culture, uh, that they narrow the field of discussion. You know, we need to oxygenate this conversation. It's not enough because then why don't decolonial theorists put um, you know, Mobutu Seko Seke is one of the icons. That's the voice of Vijay Prashad. You're listening to Law and Disorder. Um, I want to zig us and zag us back to the present. So much of your work in your 2007 book, The Darker Nation, builds the concept of the third world as a project as opposed to a place. I'm wondering if, and we don't have a ton of time, but I'm wondering if you can talk about the lineage of, of that concept why it's useful, where it started, and then Zigas and Zagas back to the present to talk about your role as the executive director currently of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Well, look, my work at Tricontinental is exactly out of the work I did to produce the darker nations and the poorer nations. In fact, my book, The Poorer Nation, ends with a call to build some sort of research institute. And, you know, lo and behold, Um, I was fortunate to be able to uh, lead this tremendous project. Well, you know, what is this project? I mean, look, I understand that we are not living in the 1950s and 60s. You know, when the third world as a project was constructed, there were mass movements that had overthrown colonial rule. There were governments that had the confidence to hold meetings such as at Bandung in Indonesia in 1955 or in in, in Belgrade in 1961 to establish the non-aligned movement. I mean, these governments had an enormous sense of confidence. They were backed by these mass movements and so on. We, We simply don't live in that period anymore. We are in a period, I would say, of sort of retreat, stasis, waiting for something to happen, you know. We are waiting for some sort of breakthrough to take place because the present is awfully miserable. In our institute, what we try to do is we try to observe, track, 
amplify voices of movements, uh, pay attention to how people are doing things differently. Um, we've been looking recently at land occupations in the Varangal region of Telangana, where people have gone in, occupied land, built houses. How are they doing it? What is inspiring them? We're looking to understand the real movement of history. You know, in a way, I, I joke with our team and say, what we're doing is building, um, you know, uh, a sort of hope inside a bottle. This is a bottle that we are placing at the edge of the ocean. And we hope that by the time it gets to a beach somewhere, the conditions might have changed. And I hope we can contribute in some small way to changing those conditions. I want to take one very quick step back. Your current institute is called Tricontinental, the Institute for Social Research. Can you tell us what that name is based on? I know that there was a Tricontinental Conference in 1906 that birthed OSPAL, the Organization for Solidarity of Peoples of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and then also the Tricontinental Magazine. Well, all of that, but actually there are two stories, and I'll be quick with this. One is, yes, there was a conference held in Havana, Cuba in 1966, an amazing conference, which was about fighting to place not only the rights of states on the table, but also movements. You know, the non-aligned movement was really an interstate body in 1961. Castro was interested in building an inter-movement body. So we are very much a movement-driven research institute based in, um, you know, in Argentina, in Brazil, in South Africa, in India. So we were very keen to, um, you know, sort of hold on to that lineage. Uh, but there's another part to the name of our institute. That's Institute for Social Research. That's the name, original name of the Frankfurt School. Why we thought that was useful was in Germany in the 20s and 30s, these Marxist intellectuals were trying to understand how is it that sections of the working class have gone over to the side of the fascists? Uh, why is uh, socialism not triumphing against this terrible disorder in the world? And we feel that the situation today is similar. I'm not one of those people, Jesse, that walks around going fascism here, fascism there. In fact, um, you know, the right wing can actually establish its, its, its agenda through democratic institutions these days for reasons we don't have time to get into. They don't really need to overthrow the constitution or to create a right wing coup. It's not necessary. On the other hand, the this question is still there. Why is it that so many people are attracted to neo-fascist forces? And I think that's the reason our institute is called Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Um, but again, our main job is not only to drive a research agenda, but to amplify the voices of movements. That's something I'm very keen on. Your book ends with a call to socialism. Much of your work focuses on state power and it's hard for me personally to imagine a socialist state that isn't burdened by just the struggle to exist. As long as capitalism exists somewhere, its violence will attack socialism in some form. I tend to find space personally for creative optimism in very small scale organizing and grassroots struggles. I'm wondering if when you use the word socialism to imagine a better future, how much of that is based on small scale community work versus taking electoral or governing power? And how do you yourself imagine that future outside of the globalized white supremacist capitalist systems that at least hold me back from imagining change on massive levels? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, first, I'm going to just come at it directly, Jesse, and just say that, look, for 
the billions of people who can't eat today um they can't afford to wait for small change uh, they need they want state power i mean you know i have experienced it directly in several countries where people tell you look we want to win elections you know in colombia there's a new government okay run by gustavo petro and francia marquez whatever gustavo and francia do will be extraordinary you know it will be a lot better than what happened in the previous government is it perfection no it's another zig um there might be a zag but it's another zig you got to risk taking power in places you got to risk failing something i learned years ago from lenin it was a side note where he said that you know if you're too afraid to fail you won't do anything and in that sense i agree that small scale experimentation one can control it a little more project its inefficiencies its bureaucracies the kind of conflict of classes and so on might not strike you small scale mutual aid has a kind of purity to it that's fine people should do that more and more of that in fact let's try to see how far it can scale upwards i have no problem with that on the other side got to risk taking power you know got to risk taking power i i remember reading that book by john holloway you know how to change the world without taking power and mm-hmm. thinking well it's okay for you john but i don't know how this is going to help people in kerala you know who are actually experimenting at a much bigger scale to transform things you know i i i i'll say a word about kerala in kerala it's because of the scale of of things that the government has been able to create essentially um high speed internet for everybody in the state it's a new development it's incredible you know they have decommodified the internet wow you know they've done that at scale for 35 million people you got to sometimes risk failure to do things and that's why that zigzag mentality to me is so important you are listening to law and disorder We've been in conversation with Vijay Prashad, who's the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and his latest book is Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vijay. Thanks a lot. It's great to chat with you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by me, Jesse Strauss, and hosted by myself and Kat Brooks. Our theme music is by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to hit us up about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.